Hello, everyone. Greetings from Stockholm, Sweden. Barry and I are here in person for the third episode of the Ivy Unfiltered podcast, and we're super excited about it. We had an amazing week. Hey, hey, as they say here in Stockholm, <laughs> we're going to be talking about a number of life-changing topics, such as how to get unstuck, how to buy back our time, how to create the societies of the future, and we're going to do that all in the next 60 minutes. So keep your expectations low. We're only going to try to solve most of the problems in your life. We'll do our best. And it's not us. Obviously, the thought leaders are our guides here. So let's start with Adam Alter. So Adam talked about how to get unstuck. And this resonated with me a lot because I feel this kind of plateau effect in a lot of things that I do where I get started. I have a lot of ideas. I have an incredible amount of energy. But then somehow, because I've set such high expectations, anxiety sets in, the momentum kind of slows down, and then I reach this plateau and I'm like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. And Adam has written an entire book about how to break through that feeling of stuckness in a variety of areas. I recommend everyone watches the full interview, reads Adam's book as well, because it's really transformative. The thing that resonated with me most, anyone who listened to the last episode knows that I love sports, elite athletes, and the example that Adam gave in terms of stuckness and the this sticky feeling that anxiety gives to us was with Lionel Messi. So for those that don't know, Lionel Messi now playing for Inter Miami is the greatest footballer of all time. I was super lucky to witness Argentina winning the World Cup in Buenos Aires at the World Cup final. So that was an amazing time. I'll talk about that another time. But what's really important about Messi, for those that don't know, is if you watch him in a game, at the beginning of the game, he just walks around. Everyone's running around. He's just walking around very leisurely, just looking around. And this is something I've actually known for years, but I didn't know why. Um, what's happening, according to Adam, is that Messi, since he was a kid, has had super high anxiety issues at the beginning of games. Despite being the greatest player of all time, he has high anxiety. And basically what he does at the beginning, somebody taught him at the beginning of a match, just look around ground yourself, calm yourself, look around the field, look at all the players, remember where you are, remember what you're doing, remember what your goal is here, and then start playing. Messi's never scored a goal in the first five minutes of a match, but he scored countless goals in the very last minute of a match. And this, for me, just gives me this concept of, I can apply this in my own life. When I get into that moment of high anxiety, of, oh my God, I need action, but that often causes, it's fight or flight, and flight or freeze is actually the third F. So freeze is a very common reaction that gets us stuck. And once we're stuck, it's very hard to break through. So I think it's just so important to just calm down, ground yourself like Messi does. Look around the field, remember where you are, and then get playing. And that's something that I really want to apply to myself to just overcome also that overall plateau effect. So that doesn't have to be a singular moment. This could also be a longer period of time in which you're like you're in the game, but the game may not be a 90 minute game. It might be one week, two week, two year project. But at the beginning, you just need to ground yourself. Remember why you're there. Remember who you are and then go forward. Love it. Love it. When I think about unstuck and getting unstuck, for me, I, I just, first of all, think about the opposite. So if stuckness is a feeling, then flow, mm. right? Or growth, it feels like the opposite of stuck. And Messi is a good example. This is not somebody who 
it's not like before he started doing this that he wasn't working hard and he didn't have a great career. It's just a question of as we work hard and do our, the best for our loved ones and our families, are we actually feeling like we're stuck in a rut and a loop? Or are we flowing and growing and changing things up? In my own life, I have often found that there's these initial moments of inspiration when something new comes about, and there's so much creative energy, and it creates a ton of momentum. But then there's this subsequent period in which there's a tremendous amount of work and uncertainty and some fear and anxiety because all kinds of doors have been opened. Pandora is yeah. completely out the box and, and it creates discomfort for everyone because it's causing things to change. And, and seeing that through, sometimes it can take days, weeks, years, decades. There's not knowing how long it can go. Eventually though, when those things do come to fruition, you don't get that initial excitement back, but you get that probably something yeah. that's even better, which is like an earned fulfillment. And knowing where we are in the journey with any given thing can sometimes be helpful. So for me, it's helpful to know that, yes, right now, maybe here I'm feeling a little bit more stuck, but it's because I'm doing the things that I have to do. But Adam does give some really good pointers for how to also overcome that feeling. So for me, Definitely slowing down what, what you were saying, Vidal, is a really good piece of advice. The other thing that really resonated with me from Adam is that uh, most people just aren't in the game long enough mm -hmm. to get to the fruition of their labors, of their creativity. A lot of people, they'll try something, they'll give it a bunch of tries, and then they'll just stop if it's not working out. Whereas the most prolific individuals, I know you're reading Leonardo da Vinci. I remember with Ivy, we had done a Frank Stella artist retrospective or Steph Curry, right? The, yeah. He shoots the three pointers, right? Yeah. I'm learning sports from it all. <laughs> These people take more shots than everybody else. They also score more, they have more hits, but it's the fact that they're prolific. Oftentimes, I think a way to get unstuck is also to just keep on going and persevering and slowing down when necessary as opposed to quitting. And a very early Ivy conversation we had done with Eric Spencer, who's a good friend of Ivy and he runs ultra marathons. He always talks about a lot of people when they quit ultra marathons, let's say halfway through at 50 miles, after a few minutes of quitting, they realize, oh, actually I'm fine. I should have kept going. Mm. So sometimes taking those small yeah. breaks can also really, yeah. really help. I think to figure out like where you are on the journey as well, it's it helps to think of this, for me anyway, to think of this graphically and really think about that plateau effect that everyone will feel at some point in their lives and probably in the midst of every project. Nothing ever goes like straight up. So what Adam talks about in the plateau effect is you have this initial burst of creativity. It's a sharp peak. And then you plateau and maybe you're trending upwards, but you're basically plateaued. And that is the period where most people, including us, all humans, they stop there because it's just too many challenges, too many blockers, and you just can't break through that plateau. The reality is if you wait long enough, if you stay in the game long enough, and you have to, the absolute guarantee of failure is stopping, right? Like, otherwise, there's still a chance, as Jim Carrey would have said in Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> so you want to get, you want to ride that plateau until you go again, with a sharp peak, because the beginning and the end of whatever initiative is the most productive. <laughs> it's the most creative. It's the middle. The middle really sucks. We talk about the middle a lot. That's very hard in business. You open a door, the close is going to be super exciting, but that middle part, it's super difficult. 
So think of yourself, figure out when you're in that plateau and figure out, okay, you may not know, you know what the end goal is, you know where you're trying to go, but figure out how far am I and how much, what can I do to just push forward a little bit every single day. And when it comes to dealing with the middle, Sunil Gupta, which is the other, one of the other modules we're going to look at today, he talks about everyday Dharma. Uh, He shares this concept of Leela, which is bringing play to every day. So this was really pretty life-changing for me. Sunil's book got delivered to my house uh, a few weeks before uh, I interviewed him. It was an advanced copy. I just opened it at a random section and it was this particular concept. And essentially the idea, the example that Sunil gave is this incredible speed skater who was very accomplished, but not yet best in the world, uh, decided that, you know what? going forward, I'm going to live my weekends like a normal human being. I'm going to have beers. I'm going to hang out with friends. I'm going to relax. I'm not going to work out. I'm not going to eat like an athlete. I'm just going to do me and I'm going to be relaxed. And I'm going to just get myself to enjoy skating and enjoy the uh, actual action of it rather than making it like uh, some brutal torture that I have to go through. Uh, to to be able to win. So he infused the sense of play into his practice and he broke the world records and became one of the best athletes in human history. When I read this and I thought about the grind, the middle, when we're in the middle of things, it really just reminded me like, okay, if I can really specifically feel like, hey, this is like a game, I'm here to perform and play and enjoy, that's really difficult to do if I'm like completely exhausted and working nonstop. And also, I'm not in a play mindset. If I'm in a like a work, this is a serious mindset, then it's harder to be playful. So I thought that bringing play could be helpful. And ever since reading it, yeah, I do my best to just remind myself to just be more playful and to enjoy, including even recording this. This could be considered like, oh, I have to get it right and it needs to be good. But it can also be fun and enjoyable. Yeah. And if we enjoy things, we're going to be able to we're going to be able to stick with it for longer. Yeah. And we're probably going to be able to be more expansive and creative in our thinking. Yeah. Let's build on that. Let's talk about Sunil now because you introduced Sunil Gupta and that concept. So we talked about flow and flow states are super important. So Sunil actually puts this in in the concept of flow states Mm -hmm. where he talks about two different personality types. Now, these aren't binary types. You aren't like one or the other. You can exhibit features of both. But he talks about exotolic personalities and autotolic personalities. And exotolic personality is when you're really focused on the achievement and the final outcome. So your mind is really focused on the final outcome. But when you're focused on the final outcome, but you're not there, that's when anxiety is at its highest. And that's not a flow state because in a flow state, what you want to have is your, or what you want to leverage is your autotolic personality, which is enjoying the experience, as you were just saying. So when you're in a flow, you enjoy the experience. Now, people who know me know that I love to be in front of a crowd. So this podcast is awkward because I need an audience and then I feel more comfortable. I've got an audience of one in front of me here. But yeah, I would always say to people, when if you put a microphone in front of my hand and put me in front of a bunch of people, I'll talk and say stuff. But it's like that scene, if anyone ever saw Old School with Will Ferrell, he did the debate and he, it's the same for me. I talk and then i don't really know what i said i have no idea it's just i always say like i blacked out um but then i get oh that was really great that was good and i'm like oh thank god because i have no idea what i said but i really think that's me getting into a flow state because i really enjoy the act of speaking to 
groups. And I'm not really thinking about what reaction am I trying to get from people. I'm just enjoying it because I like it. Yeah. And that's the flow state. And when you're in that flow state, athletes get in flow, obviously, but there are many versions. Everyone gets in a flow state in something that they do. So really look for that autotolic because when you're really enjoying something, you're not really thinking about like, why am I doing this? Where am I trying to get? You're just like, this is fun and great. And the experience, I want to make the best of the experience. So I definitely get that when I'm skiing as well. I'm not thinking about the bottom. I'm like, oh my God, this is incredible. And you just get in, into that amazing flow state. I want to talk about something else that Sunil brought up, which I found very interesting. Again, this is from high performers, athletes, but also high performers all over. Two episodes ago, we talked about with Eduardo Brincero about the paradox of performance. He talked about the importance of deliberate practice. And Sunil, in this module, introduced the concept of deliberate rest, which I found very fascinating. It's very hard to get into a flow state when you're exhausted and burnt out. So deliberate rest is super interesting because he says a lot of high performers, they actually build eight, eight periods of deliberate rest into each day in their lives every day but that rest isn't like a power nap it's not 30 minutes it's not an hour it's five minutes but it's five minutes where you just do something fun it's not output oriented it's not it's whatever it is that gives you that little micro flow state and he actually proposes this 55 5 model which i really wish and will try to implement and it's so hard in this day of back-to-back -back calls and back-to-back -back meetings. But 55-5 is for every 55 minutes of work that you do, have five minutes of rest. And it, he's very specific. He's not saying, oh, have 30 minutes of rest, right? That would be like six breaks or 40 minutes of rest. No, he's saying every 55 minutes have five minutes because the long rest is actually less productive than you for you than multiple short rests. So this concept of deliberate resting and like planning that out and being very purposeful and driven about it, the same way we're driven about achievement will lead to better results. But it's so hard. It's one of those things where we're like five minutes, five minutes feels so short. But actually, if you're having fun, five minutes doesn't feel that short. And it's really within our control to build that time and to be deliberate about it. Yeah. If it's not deliberate, then we're not going to enjoy the benefits of it. That's for sure. Yeah. And it seems simple and hard at the same time, like taking that five minutes. And I think when we're talking about these topics, it's good to think about what are the tactical things I can do and what are the really critically strategic angles that are important? So when it comes to this, like taking rests, what I've found is if I have a full day of calls from early morning until yeah. really late afternoon <laughs> to early evening, if there is a break for 30 to 45 minutes at some point where I can go for a, a quick run or if I can really just go and bulk or walk around a few blocks and come back, it's almost like I'm restarting my day and I, I can be so much more playful and strong. So this is obviously a no brainer, but it's the power of those tactical little changes in our schedule. Going from that tactical approach to maybe the much more strategic, not better, but strategic. So we need to do the tactical bottoms up mm. elements to get unstuck, to find everyday Dharma, but we also need to do these bigger, uh, strategies as well and it often comes down to our north star so sunil talks about dharma the way he learned about it from his grandfather when he was growing up is all about what really is your kind of purpose what makes you come alive what's the song you're born to sing and i think that segues really nicely to dan martel who says you need to have a hundred percent clarity 100 percent belief 100 percent of the time Okay, so to repeat, 100% clarity, 100% belief, 
100% of the time. And that's really, if you think about yourself and everyone around you from the moment you wake up all the way to when you go to bed, what percentage of clarity, belief are you, what percent of the time do you have total clarity and belief throughout the course of the day? If you're anything like me, it's a fluctuating. And then also, if you look at a given week, how many days did you spend with like total clarity and belief and conviction? And how many days were you all over the place? So this concept of Dharma, this what you're meant to do, this belief and clarity that Dan talks about, I think many people, so many teams and business executives we work with, it's actually pretty difficult. It's easier to just work hard and power through and make things happen and try to hit the KPIs than to think really deeply about like, why am I doing this? But if we are clear on that, then it becomes easier. I know that conviction is the only reason why Ivy still exists. It's the belief that if people learn more together, if they connect more deeply, if they support each other, keep each other accountable, they're going to achieve their goals better. That's a no-brainer. I have 100% confidence in that. I have 100% belief in that. But how you deliver that to the world, thats that just changes over time. As I'm learning more, as the world keeps changing, we, we keep elevating our approach. Sunil gives a very powerful, practical approach towards this finding the Dharma, especially when... We have all these kinds of things that may feel like, oh, this is just grunt work. This isn't my purpose to do this and that, this task. What he says is that just look at your whole day and see when are you feeling most energized, most alive, most connected with your dharma, and then really do whatever you can to double down on those things. So he gives an example of a nurse who had to do this really painful paperwork all the time to fill information about the patients. And she turned out painful pieces of paperwork into telling these like incredible narratives about the patients uh, qualitatively that was never asked of her, but it completely transforms yeah. how everybody operates operates in the uh, in the hospital. So Sunil has a lot of good insights on this. And then what Dan says is to do this audit of your schedule, right? So if you look at how you spend all your time, what are the things that really bring you down that you just need to offload? What are the things that really make you come alive and generates a lot of value? And his whole point is, it's not just about eliminating the painful stuff that you can offload, automate or get support from other people. It's also about then filling that gap with the things that really energize you and get you to deliver. His point is a lot of people, when they try to buy back their time, they try to fill it with just distractions. And his point is actually above and beyond the rest, that's important to take care of our mind, body, and soul. He says, you got to also fill it with what Sunil would call your dharma. Yeah, yeah. It's super interesting. And with Dan, and to introduce Dan, the concepts of buying back your time, he's using the word buy quite deliberately because he does see, thinking about business leaders, there is a dollar value to your time. And the reality is what specifically what he says to do this time audit that Barry mentioned, he says, Take two weeks, every 15 minutes, just record what you did in the last 15 minutes. Um, and then highlight in red the activities that you found energy draining and highlight in green the activities that you found energy producing. And then for all that red stuff, put a dollar value against, not a dollar value in dollar terms, but he says put a dollar sign, $1 sign to $4 signs, like you would see in a restaurant review. Um, for all the $1 sign activities, these are the things that are producing the least value in your view. For all of those $1 or 
or $1 sign activities, he actually says it's better to delegate those tasks at 25% of whatever you consider your hourly rate or hourly cost. That is a worthwhile investment because then you unlock so much more time for those $4 sign activities. I'm not sure if anyone in the audience has ever tried, and especially for two weeks, it's not for one day. He says it has to be two weeks because one day isn't a good enough example of all of the different kinds of activities that you do. But taking this very deliberate tactical approach to valuing your time, properly valuing your time and properly figuring out what needs to be delegated, because delegating is one of the most difficult tasks at the end of the day. And Adam Alter also talks about that's somewhere where business leaders especially get really stuck because it's like it's just one of the time sucks. It's like an inability to delegate is always going to lead you to a situation where you're feeling that plateau because you're overwhelmed. And sometimes when you do, sometimes the world forces you, sometimes you do it of your own volition. But when you're able to delegate, you gain back that time for both deliberate rest, but also for those $4 sign activities, as, as Dan put it. So extremely important. I, I definitely want to try to do a time audit. It's difficult, I think, and it's almost scary. I don't <laughs> want to know. It's <laughs> and it's interesting, like calendar apps, Google Calendar now tells you how many hours you spend in meetings every week, which is always a shocking number. So if you add that up with your also your screen time that your Mac or iPhone will also keep track of, we've got some tools that will actually help you do that time audit. And then you can make small adjustments and every $1 sign activity that you can Buying back your time, that doesn't have to be human resource. That could be an automation resource. There are lots of tools out there now. But 25% of your hourly rate from Dan's perspective, that's not nothing. He puts significant opportunity costs to that time. So it's important to consider and yeah, buy back your time. Exactly. Get unstuck. <laughs> it's nice. These three modules really go well together. Yeah. We got to get Adam, Sunil and Dan on a panel at some yeah. point. We'll get them. Yeah. We'll get them to, I think they'll enjoy meeting each other. Just because you went quite tactical there again, which I think is critical because we want practical ways to change things up. And I think making everything a little bit better can, over time, compound into extraordinary breakthroughs. As we continue, though, I, I do want to just bring it back to one other thing that Dan said, which is the bigger your why, the easier the how becomes. So if you really are, while doing all these optimizations, what are you optimizing for? If it's just to make a few extra bucks, man, that sucks. That's not just to make a little more. I'm going to do all these optimizations. It's not really going to get you there. But if your why is really big, if what's driving you uh, in terms of like how you want to be of service to the world or what kind of emotional state you want to be in for a majority of your living life, those things, like if that's what's at stake, if your family's at stake, if your impact on the world is at stake, then how you get there becomes a little bit easier because it's so much more motivating uh, to do all these optimizations. Yeah, I think you can get into that feeling of stuckness, though. When the, it's, it's super important to have that North Star. But when you're so focused on that outcome, which is generally the North Star is like the biggest goals, right? I think that can also be on a day-to-day -day basis quite overwhelming. So this is why the balance of that, of the strategic approach with the tactical approach is so important because anxiety will set in. Because you're always going to think about what's the gap between where I'm supposed to be and what I'm doing today. Because sometimes you, you do have to do those $1 sign days, or sometimes you have you just don't make any progress. You're really stuck. Yeah. And you're like, 
shit, did I just waste this whole day? How much does this day count? And that builds anxiety and you go to sleep like that. You can't, you're tossing and turning in bed. You wake up, oh my God, I have to do all this stuff. Yeah. And it builds and that kind of catastrophizing because keeping in mind the positive outcome is super important, but it's also a very human response. It's a security defense response of, okay, I need to think about the, the worst outcomes. What's the downside here? And that actually will keep you stuck in your plateau as well. So I think these little... The, the, the deliberate rest, the finding your autotolic personality and enjoying the experience, the getting rid of the red things that reduce your energy is super important. And balancing to overcome that anxiety is extremely important. I'll give one other tactical tip from Sunil, which I really enjoyed. He talks about a lot of anxiety. And this is from the research of Viktor Frankl, mm -hmm. the author of Man's Search for Meaning and, and a Holocaust and Auschwitz survivor. Viktor Frankl, who's a psychologist, he talks about recognizing the space between a trigger of anxiety and then your reaction to that trigger. Now, these triggers are everywhere. I think the most, it's important and in this world now, everyone's a lot more vulnerable about the anxieties that they feel, which I think is extremely healthy and great. Although in the workplace for business leaders, you, you don't necessarily always want to show your anxiety. It doesn't feel fair to everyone else. But the reality is, whether no matter how hard you're trying, you're going to give little hints. And we humans, we're really good at reading body language, hearing voices and so on. So you're going to give hints. So you want to actually, it's not about pretending you're not anxious. It's about reducing that level of anxiety so it doesn't spread to your team. Finding that gap between the trigger and your reaction and extending that gap as much possible is extremely important to just lowering the stakes and actually having a more reasoned and less emotionally and fear-driven reaction. What Sunil says, building on this idea from Viktor Frankl, what Sunil says is to find a home base. Now, this could be like a physical action that you take. It could be like a thought that you have. It could be just like a visual that you imagine. It could be a piece of music. But ideally, you want this to be something that you can do at any point around people as well, right? And the example he gives is when he feels a trigger of his anxiety, and it is super important to figure out what your triggers are, when he feels that example or, or that trigger, before reacting, he puts his hand on his chest. It's just like a reminder. Okay. <laughs> We're home base now. Like we just breathe, hold, hold on. And this could all happen in half a second, right? You're just like, it's an automatic reaction. Like, I'm just going to do this. And it just tells your brain. It's like, an, it's, a, it's another trigger to your brain that like, nope, we're at home base. Just going to consider, okay, now we react. And that gap, making that gap as long as possible in the moment, if it's a very intense amount of stress or anxiety, you might need just a quick reaction. But that gap between a trigger and a response could be many hours. It could be many days. And it's okay sometimes to take your time mm -hmm. to react to something rather than what stress usually wants us to do is fight or flight or freeze. And none of those are particularly great outcomes, although those that's our option set, realistically, when we're under threat. The important thing is, though, obviously, what our brain conceives as threat is not actually always a mortal threat. So when you increase that gap, you might find, okay, wait a minute, I'm actually not under threat. Like Maybe I've just overvalued this level of threat. So let me go to home base. And again, that could be very short. It could be mm -hmm. very long, but go to home base and then come out again. So I, I found that very interesting. I, I've been working a lot on, on anxiety recently, and I'm finding a lot of wisdom in in the work that we do, but also out in the world. And what what's most comforting, obviously, at the end of the day is, is to realize you're not alone. Everybody feels that anxiety. 
many people are wearing masks because they want to show strength and project strength. But everybody feels this. Everyone has the same evolutionary kind of biology to defend themselves. And the brain is very interesting. The, the part of our brain, the limbic system, is where emotions live. And that part is the older part of our brain. That's like the more kind of animal part of our brain. And the part that makes us human is the prefrontal cortex, which has speech, which has our like consciousness and conscious ideas and our logic is all in this prefrontal cortex. There's a much newer part of our brain that actually can't overpower that limbic system, which it's a twitch. Like you're, you're going to have that reaction no matter what, but the prefrontal cortex, if it's trained appropriately, it certainly can calm things down and it can basically put a structure around things such that you can be a little bit more logical and not necessarily less emotional because the emotions drive everything, but be a bit more deliberate about which emotions you exhibit and express and how those lead to actions and behaviors. All right. Next time we're playing poker, if I see you do this, I'm not, uh, you're worried <laughs> about or you're <laughs> worried about your hands. <laughs> we had Gurdav also yeah. this week and Gurdav is this extraordinary spiritual leader. He helped, he played the key role in making the peace between Colombia and the FARC rebels. And one thing he said, just building off of what you were saying, is this importance of also getting better at creating that space between stimulus and response is things like meditation can help us just train our brain to become better. There's a lot of scientific studies that show that those who meditate the gray matter in their brain like expands on certain areas that helps control those. One of the things he said that I've never done extensively, but I, I definitely want to, he really does believe that having these silent retreats are really critical also because it's almost like taking what you said, which is important in the moment, if you get triggered, creating that space. But then when we zoom out in the whole scope of life where we're living for years and years, taking a few days to also create space between all the constant stimulus hitting us and all the things we need to do. So being silent, quite literally, you shut up <laughs> and you're, you're not being bombarded by new information. You're not needing to express yourself. And I think it also creates this extended space. I was really moved when Gurudev said a lot of corporations and companies that he visits, he gives lots of talks. He finds that there are a lot of people who are lonely, sad, depressed, and this isn't some companies, but bad cultures, it's just generally speaking, people are struggling, right? And when we think about Maslow's hierarchy, those of us fortunate to live in places in the world where most people aren't worried about just food and drink and shelter, although of course, certainly many people also are, that alone, we need food and shelter and nutrition. And we need also above and beyond that connection and belonging, and we want to self-actualize. And again, for that space needs to be created and employers, whether we want to or don't want to, or what we feel about it, the reality is like, if we're working with humans, the more we can ensure that they're putting into practice a lot of what we've been talking about here, the more we can create environments for them to flourish, the better it's going to be. So obviously having silent retreats at the office isn't the solution here, but it's encouraging, it's encouraging people to really take the time to do what will truly recharge them and to come back really fired up, but also 
giving people the means and the training potentially to be able to navigate these challenges better. And then from a tactical and practical perspective, he did also, we asked him about, okay, but inevitably when you come across what would be called toxic people that really throw off your game, even if you're like all Zen and you did your breathing, you did your meditation, but then there's somebody who's just like an unreasonable a-hole, right? For lack of a better term, how do you deal with that? And he also gave this really nice approach to this. He said, first of all, don't label those people toxic because then that's how you'll treat them and that's how you'll treat your relationship with them. Instead, think of them as individuals with a condition. Lots of people have lots of different conditions. You don't hate them because they have a condition, but you're cognizant of the fact that they have a condition. So see it as an illness that the person has, that they're maybe the person you're dealing with has all this negativity. And then navigate accordingly of course wherever that may be that you you're dealing with or wherever is like a recurring trigger in a subsequent talk that will come to that we had with julia diganji that's coming up in the coming weeks she also talks about one-off triggers are they're one-offs if mm-hmm. once in a blue moon you get triggered by one person okay that, that happens but if there's a pattern of this person keeps triggering me or like I'm triggered by everyone I work with, then that's like a real problem that does need to be addressed, any kind of negative pattern. So how can we best break that pattern? And we can do all the things on our own, but we can also uh, create environments where those around us are being able to overcome their triggers. Yeah, it's very, this is something I talked about, I think two episodes ago about this concept of and Gurudev mentions this as well, this concept of negativity being an extremely powerful force. And positivity is ultimately the more powerful force, but it has to be repeated, it has to be practiced, it has to be like very loud. And the small amount of that kind of toxicity or negativity can create an enormous amount of anxiety, stress, demotivation amongst an organization or any group of people who are trying to achieve something together. So for me, I have always practiced, actually not always, this is not always, in recent years, I found it really frustrating when there were, I I don't want to say toxic people, it's just like the people who are a little bit more negative, always saw the downside of things or the fear-based side of things. And and I find it frustrating because it triggered me. And then I was quite fearful too. I, I was susceptible to that negativity. And then as I got into more senior leadership roles, I thought, okay, I have a responsibility. This is a duty. No matter how I feel, I have to do what I need to do to not, it doesn't mean that I have to feel amazing all the time, but I need to do what I have to do to show up with a smile at all times, no matter how I feel, because it's not, we're responsible to those people around us, especially in leadership roles. But I think this applies to everybody. Mm -hmm. You're responsible. You have a duty towards people and smiles are contagious. That's great. But the reality is negativity is super contagious. And so I, I I encourage everyone and I encourage myself and it's hard to really keep up the standards, but try to be always a positive force, no matter how you feel. Try to always look on the bright side of things because that is the way that you're actually motivating people. And organizations, groups, they're just like individuals. So groups can have stress, collective stress, collective anxiety. And I believe there's studies on this now where a founder in a startup who is particularly anxious and and founders understandably of startups, especially are very stressed individuals. They're very stressed. They've got cash issues. They've got to make their numbers. They've made promises to a bunch of people. They, They have an enormous amount of pressure on them. Even if they show up 
as best as they can, they smile and, and are positive and inspiring. Some of that anxiety actually permeates not just to the individuals around them, it permeates into the culture of a company. Mm -hmm. So they've, they've found companies where the founders have left and years later, there's still a stressed culture within that organization. So there are, it's not just day to day, there are like years long stakes to your behavior on any given day, especially in leadership roles. So that's an extremely important duty that you have to just stay positive and be cognizant of what kind of pattern am I, what kind of pattern strength, pattern or habit am I introducing into the group now? And particularly in my position of influence, like what pattern do I want to introduce? Yeah. And that's the gap as well. Like you need to take your time before responding to things because that you need to consider that in that gap of time when you put your hands on your chest. So, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to go into a fear-based dystopic future here. I'm going to present a positive future, whether that's in the next hour, in the next day, or in the next 10 years. And uh, that reminds me of Dante Masulo. Uh, if you imagine a scale, feathers and pebbles if you have a scale and one side is pebbles and the other side is feathers if you want the scale to be balanced you need way more feathers and the pebbles and what dan at columbia university he runs the spirit mind body institute there the pebbles are negativity they're heavy and our brain is wired to over index on dealing with negative stuff so as a leader it's madness that if wherever the scales are in our organization, if we're also like piling on pebbles with emphasizing the negativity, it's going to be really difficult for people. So it takes this extra effort to focus on the positives, not in a like a ridiculous way, ignoring problems, but rather coming at things from a place of like, where are we already crushing it? How can we do more of that? What's blocking that? As opposed to let's make a list of everything that sucks, like in any organization, you could take you can take a one week retreat offsite where people just keep talking about what sucks at the company and believe me <laughs> that sounds like a great retreat <laughs> yeah people will be super depressed right so it's a reality that we each have in individual challenges we need to overcome we have organizational ones but if we keep in mind that each piece of positivity is just a feather and each piece of negativity is a pebble we we have to really over index then how much we celebrate the successes, how much we're cognizant of the good stuff that's going on so that it becomes easier to remove those pebbles and, and really focus. I think that's also a great segue to the final module we're going to talk about today with Kristen Godsey. And she talks about everyday utopia. <laughs> we covered everyday Dharma and we're going to uh, talk about everyday utopia. And what's fascinating is, so she looked at the last 2000 years of civilizations, but what has actually led for better societies to be created versus not. Now, the word utopia for a couple centuries now has had a negative connotation. Yeah. Like utopian thinking is you're like a space cadet. You're imagining this like wonderful world. People are dying out there, right? That's the kind of, there's a bit of this inbuilt cynicism. What is true though is going off of what we were just talking about, if for an individual, negativity can easily outweigh positivity, and in groups, if that can be exponentially amplified, then in societies, generally, if everyone is focused on the negatives all the time, how will it be possible for them to have a lot of the things what we've been talking about today, the sense of play, the sense of flow, the sense of dharma doing what you want to be doing, it just becomes much more difficult if the entire society is 
bathing its citizens with like negativity and fear, then it just, uh, yeah, the odds are stacked against our favor. And in defense of positive thinking, what Kristen reminded us that really moved me is that the United States, which is where Ivy was founded and where a lot of our work gets done, the founding fathers were ridiculously utopian. Okay, and we're not criticizing them for being utopian. They were very pragmatic. They were very realistic. They were hyper well-educated. They knew a lot about, they all knew a lot about what went down in Rome and Greece and other places where democracies failed and horrible leaders took charge and made like negative chaos happen. The thing that resonated most with me from what Kristen said is, it's absolutely necessary that there has to be some bigger vision we're driving towards and we shouldn't be shy or embarrassed or feel like that's being a Pollyanna to just imagine this. It's not roast into its glasses, but it's more, yeah, there's a lot that sucks in society and humans can be awful. Yes, true. But we need to endeavor to a state that's better than the one we have now. So I think what gives me confidence and strength and what gives me hope is to really think about not comparing our societies and the world that we're in now to some utopia that never existed and being all depressed about how imperfect it is, but actually comparing it to like a hundred years ago, a lot of things were so much worse across all countries, mm -hmm. whether it was life expectancy, whether it's just like a focus on human rights, any kind of attention being paid to the environment. We have advanced a lot. Now that's not a get out of jail free card for oh, now we should just be happy with all the imperfections in society, but rather just coming from a place of we, what are our strengths? What are we doing good now that we are happy about that we can double down on? What's holding us back and how do we remove that? I also think going back to Dan Martel's point about like 100% clarity, 100% belief, 100% of the time, that is the polar opposite of pol political discourse in most societies, right? Like, how clear are people? What do they believe in as far as what the future should be like? And how consistently is that being yeah. applied? Final thought that I think is important for all of us as leaders is, as I mentioned in the last episode, a lot of business leaders with a lot going on for them, with a lot of resources, they're super depressed about society and they make it known how much things suck, right? All they're doing is adding pebbles onto the scales as opposed to playing a leadership role and articulating a vision and a belief on what are the strengths, how we can double down on them, what can be practically done. And uh, we all know this from growing up, like if everybody cleaned in front of their house, we'd have clean streets yeah. everywhere. So how do we take care of what's around us uh, while also believing in something more positive, a, a better future, and not being afraid also to have hope and articulate positive visions? Yeah. I love this module and I love the concept of utopian thinking and the, and the concept of having utopian thinking, not just about a hundred years into the future or a thousand years into the future. You can be, you can have a utopian mindset about your week this week. It is about really defining the best possible outcome and not really minding about the realism of it so much or how applicable it is now. So if we take the example of the U.S. specifically with the Declaration of Independence. So let's think, let's take that example. It's 1776, okay? It's the age of monarchs. And we have a group of men in the US writing a document that says all men are created equal and they have the right to life, liberty, and property. 
and the pursuit of happiness, actually. And it wasn't property, so they took it further. The pursuit of happiness seems ironic at that period because all men weren't free <laughs> at that time. There were certainly, this this was the, the slave age within the U.S. as well, and half of the, Thomas Jefferson himself was a slave owner. But what they put down was a vision for the future that they thought was achievable. It wasn't about, this is realistic now, this is going to happen now. The concept of a utopia is so derived now because think about today if we wrote a document that said we're you know the con the new declaration of independence for the united states or whatever country for the earth human society all humans all people shall be equal shall have rights shall have liberty shall have the right to property shall have the right to self-determination shall have the right to food and shelter and basic income access to education and technology and whatever. I can list all of these things. We're very far away from that in our current world. Very far away. Medical care. Mm -hmm. where we're super far away. And if I wrote that down today and we said, okay, this is our mission. We're working towards this. We'd be told you're crazy. That's not real. That's not happening right now. What are you talking about? This isn't your, what's your roadmap? Like, how's that going to happen? Show me how it's going to work. The reality is if that was the reaction to the Declaration of Independence, I don't think people would have gotten their muskets and bayonets out and wanted to fight the British. And I think that was what a lot of the European monarchs thought. Okay, whatever. This is ridiculous. We're going to put down this rebellion like we put down every other utopian rebellion. But the reality is when you lose your ability to imagine your way out of the present challenges, You'll never, that is, that's the road to dystopia. It's when you can't imagine a functional utopia. So not all utopias are created equal, but having the imagination to see that hope and to have that optimism is the only, it's the same as the plateau. If you stop, if you give up, if you accept the idea of dystopia, if you accept the idea of bad outcomes, we won't get there. And that's why it comes back to the duty of having that smile, being positive, it's what's interesting because Dan talked about energizing tasks and, and tasks that drain your energy. The reality is actually negativity takes less energy. I talked about the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex. It doesn't like prefrontal cortex uses a lot of energy, literally burns a lot of calories, mm -hmm. like our the rational part of our minds. And it's easier like the, the limbic system, the emotional response, which is generally more negative and threat based. That just doesn't take a lot of energy out of us. So showing up with positivity showing up with a imagination for the future it's hard so when we talk about individuals and that duty i don't want to i don't want to downplay it like it's easy it's actually extremely difficult to put on a brave face every day and to keep that on and to keep that keep wearing that mask and then believing it it's not about the mask it's about really believing it it takes an enormous amount of energy and as a society it's so much easier for us to fall into the negative patterns. Mm -hmm. It's just easier and it's more weirdly short-term pleasurable. Makes you feel a little bit more protected. Get in with the group, think, oh, everything is scary, bad, it's going to be awful. But And then looking at like this vision of the future where everything is solved, anyone with any idea would think, okay, yeah, for this to happen, we'd all need to work really hard and invent a lot of things yeah. and innovate and so on. Those things are hard. Those are real challenges, but that's in the nature of society and the world. And I always think about it. It's a thing I say to friends all the time. I always say the past was a terrible place and today is the best day to ever be alive. Now, that's not the case for every individual in the world in that because our lifespans are short and different periods of, of individual lives can be terrible. But as we look at the progression of humanity, 
in in many aspects, this certainly is better. In almost all aspects, when you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for the majority of people, life is better. But there's more to go. And the reason, the fact that we're not there yet is not a reason to think, oh, it's it's all going to go badly. We're, we're just going to go in a downward direction. We have to believe that we can improve so that we can improve. Because otherwise, like, why innovate? Why expend the energy to do more? So I find that idea very powerful. I want to spread that idea as much as I can because I want more optimism in my life, certainly. Something that really impacted me in college, I'll just as a closing point, is I was taking a class on economic development and we were looking at the UN Millennium Development Goals. So this was supposed to be, I think they they set the goals in the year 2000 and it was like by 2010, there was a bunch of goals and they were quite audacious goals and none of them were reached except for one. And they were like, not audacious, these were important, but very ambitious goals. One of those goals were reached and like examples was like all girls going to primary school in the whole world, hunger being eliminated and, and so on. We didn't reach those goals by 2010, but we did reach one goal, which was having the level of poverty in the world. Okay. How and why did that happen? We did reach that goal in 10 years. How and why did that happen? It's because China opened their economy and lifted 500 million people out of poverty and brought them into the global middle class. And it makes me think, okay, like we can argue, we can think about like how and why and the, the you know, the good and the bad of that. But the reality is that's an enormous amount of lives that were measurably, materially improved. And that shows hope. But if those millennium development goals weren't set, whether it was deliberate by the UN or not, the reality is there was a group of people with a vision of a better future and it worked out because they could imagine that better future. So I find that really powerful. I'm a big proponent of optimism, particularly in the long term. But also I acknowledge that in the short term, it's just so hard because you look around and there's awful stuff happening in the world every day and there's immense challenges. And in so many ways, it does feel like for all the progress that we've made in certain areas, we've really done a lot of damage as a society and as human beings. And we're capable of really terrible acts, but we're also capable of immense innovation and we're capable of dreaming the Declaration of Independence, then bringing it, taking 250 years to bringing it to a more perfect state, mm -hmm. not perfect at all. The United States is certainly more perfect, but not perfect at all. But that's a vision for the hope. And that's you want to just keep that trajectory going. And much like people, societies will also get stuck. They'll also plateau sometimes. And if you look at the GDP of countries, it goes up. There's all these ups and downs and ups and downs. It's never a consistent trend. So I think of my own life actually like the same curve. As long as it's, there'll be ups and downs, but as long as I'm trending upwards, then great. Like up is where I want to go. I think societies need to dream for the same thing. But we can also see this is very real. There are societies who don't just go up. In fact, they go down. And that's when you lack the vision, lack the clarity, and lack the conviction to, to put that um, mm -hmm. into reality. Yeah. Micro example that came to mind as we were speaking is George Washington himself. His letters during the American War of Independence, it is bad. Everything sucks. People don't know what they're doing. They don't have enough supplies. They're outgunned, outmanned. It just, it's terrible. But Guess what? They kept fighting. They kept against the most powerful empire at the time, the British Empire, because it was a worthwhile goal. The, go the why was so significant 
that despite all the negativity, it was worth continuing rather than quitting. So that's one thing that came to mind for me is because it's so hard to maintain this micro daily positivity or hour to hour positivity, because there is so much hard hardship, anchoring ourselves in a, something truly worthy is critical to really overcome. The other thing I wanted to mention more at a macro level is there was the first world war, which was the war to end all wars. That's what people thought that it would be. No, no way we're doing this again. The League of Nations was established. And the League of Nations, like a precursor to the UN, was a total failure. So shortly after, there was the Second World War, right? And then after the Second World War, we had the United Nations, right? And after the Second World War, also the European Union came about. And mortal enemies, Germany and France, that had been fighting for centuries, it now is unthinkable for them to go to war with each other. They're like the two of the closest allied nations ever the world has ever seen. So even if we misfire, like League of Nations was super imperfect. United Nations, clearly not perfect. There was the Declaration of Human Rights, which was similar to what you were meant. Imperfect, right? Or imperfectly implemented, very inspirational and aspirational. So just because our current institutions don't work well, now there's the UN 2030 development goals, right? Like the, if we can keep just getting better, calibrating yeah like we had these goals we didn't quite hit them but as long as that north star is powerful i think even in the most dysfunctional institutions whichever country you're watching from i'm sure you can think of many in your own country it's a matter of again how do we make them better and for better or for worse it's got to be always like how do we elevate the vision and then how do we make the little things better so that people get to a better place as we get ready to conclude today i want to do something experimental what I'd like to do is just for us, like a quick fire round, hmm. reflecting on these modules, I want each of us to just share, okay, based on this module, what's a problem like this that I'm, I recently faced and what's the way I solved it. And we're going to keep this to like, like a fast, like a minute. So without explaining too much, but that way, I think for everybody, as they're thinking about how do we implement a lot of what was discussed, clearly everybody can go and watch the full modules and read the books. We're going to be linking to everything. So you can see all of that, but I feel like maybe this will yeah. bring it to a crystallization. So we'll go in the general order that we followed. So for Adam Alter, how to get unstuck. If you have an example, like an experience share, you can go first or I'm happy to just dive in. Dive in while I hit. While okay. Dive in. So for me, getting unstuck when a few years ago, we were having an unexpected series of business challenges that turned into like a prolonged period of uncertainty. Um, I felt like I was working really hard every day. I was grateful that I kept got to keep working, but I was a bit like energetically stuck. So I have this peer mentoring forum and YPO and my YPO forum mates who've known me for years were able to get me to think, hey, uh, if you're feeling stuck, it may be because you are feeling like you're small and you're carrying this big thing, which is your company. And if you just switch that around and think like you're the big thing and the company is one of your creations on the way to you implementing your life goals, that can help you. And that little twist, that visualization, which I may have mentioned in a prior episode, that was like a really mm -hmm. powerful thing that got me unstuck where i felt yeah. like i was a slave to something 
in the sense of, or trapped negatively, I realized, no, it's just like one way in which I'm expressing myself. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. I've got an example. It's this podcast. We talked about doing this six months ago and then we didn't because it felt like, oh, it's a big task. We got to do a podcast. We got to record. What are we going to do? And so on. And then at some point we just, it was Gabby. My partner was like, guys, just do the podcast. And two days later we were recording and actually really unblocked it got us unstuck in an incredible way because it's not just the act of recording. It's for me, it, it, it's a creative outlet. Now we have a, some material to work with. It was inspiring. There was something to work on and to improve. So sometimes it's just do the smallest thing that's also fun to just get started on an initiative, right? And that gets you out of that plateau. Having the idea, that's great. I think we talked extensively about what the podcast could be and then we couldn't do it yeah. because we just had to take the one step. Yeah. And this is the third episode. And I have no doubt the 10th episode will be 10 times better than this one because we're also, because we're having yeah. to do this, we're figuring out how to make it better also with your guidance. So mm -hmm. do tell us what we can do more and less of. Let's go next to Gurudev. So even though I said I don't do silent retreats, very in the first year of entrepreneurship, I was working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, literally at all times. Yes, of course, I was having meals and maybe doing some social stuff, but there was no break whatsoever. And even though I didn't do silent retreats, about a few months into entrepreneurship and that kind of grind, decided to just not work on Saturdays. And what that means is I wasn't silent, but I wouldn't talk about work. I wouldn't do work calls. I wouldn't look at my work emails. And I've been doing that for 13 years, no work on Saturdays. And it's been my equivalent of a recurring silent retreat in the sense that when for a whole day, I like actively, even when people talk to me about work, I'll just say something general and then say, let's talk about this more on not Saturday. So obviously this is the concept of Shabbat, Sabbath, taking a day off, six days of hard work creation. Doesn't need to be six days, but keeping the creative work to six days and then keeping just one day of just reflection and joy and enjoying, enjoying and observing the world. Yeah. Deliberate rest. Yes. That's cool. I, it makes me realize I have a silent retreat tradition of my own, which is my mornings. I was never a morning person until COVID. I would wake up at the last possible moment to be able to shower, get ready and go to work. And in COVID, obviously there was nowhere to go and that could have extended my sleep. But for some reason I started, I found myself waking up earlier and earlier. I think because we had nothing to do, I was also going to sleep earlier and earlier, but I got addicted to my mornings and my mornings are a kind of silent retreat of my own. I wake up and this is from someone who's not an early bird. So I'm giving this as an example for anyone who thinks it's not possible. It is all it requires is going to sleep earlier. So there is a trade-off to be made here. But I wake up at five every morning and when I can't, I have a bad day. I don't like it. So it's not about getting more sleep. It's about keeping to the routine. But I wake up at five and between five and seven, it's my time. The whole world is asleep. Not really, but I try to pretend like everyone's asleep. It's my time. I don't talk to anyone. I don't do work. I do the stuff I want to do. I watch shows or documentaries or read or play video games, whatever. I drink my big pot of tea and it's just my, it's so relaxing. And it's interesting because when I don't have that silent retreat, yeah, I might've gotten two more hours of sleep, but I just don't feel good that day. I don't feel the same. So I don't consider it deliberate rest because I've just woken up, but I think it is a, it's a mental rest and it's a space. It's like the space that's mine. And I always used to find flying, especially in periods of extremely high stressful work, I used to find 
flying quite relaxing because it's okay i'm off the grid no one i i don't have to do anything i just sit in silence mm -hmm. or at the cinema it's i'm in a movie right no one can reach you the phone is off um so being quite deliberate about that i think it, it it's its own version of a silent retreat i think gurudev would though push us to to be like no do it for two days let's not <laughs> do a real silent thing and i'm curious to try although it does feel a little bit terrifying and yeah. daunting yeah for uh, Sunil Gupta, Everyday Dharma, what really, what really has always been a, a key question for me, he, he talks about whatever it is where you most are singing your song, do more of that. Obviously, Dan Martel is also talking about do more of those like tasks you're more passionate about and give the most value. I discovered probably like a year and a half or two years ago is maximize expression. The more I express myself, and share what I have to share with the world, the better. But it took a very long time to realize, okay, how do I express myself? Currently, I'm interviewing these wonderful individuals and they're expressing themselves, but I'm getting to express my desire to ask questions and find the truth and getting to share that with the world. So recently we went from interviewing three people a week to now it's five people a week so that every workday there's a new interview. And when I shared this with, friends and advisors and so forth they're like whoa that's crazy that's so many every day that's mm -hmm. but then i'm like it's it never feels like work that part it's so enjoyable and uh, never stressful so went from i used to do one digital interview <laughs> a week i think something like that now it's five and on top of that this podcast creating also micro coaching summaries now i want to write a book more on that another time so I think that the more I express myself, I know that I can't express myself 24 hours in a day because then I would just be mm. talking or writing all the time and nobody, like nobody, like creating the structures for that expression to be amplified is also critical and shared. But I think that's been a, a key realization for me. So a dream state for me to live in that everyday Dharma would be like every day in which like where expression is maximized not just of my own, but of those around me and like being a force for getting people to also express yeah. themselves. And I would encourage everybody to think about how much are you expressing yourself? How much are you allowing others to express themselves? I don't mean just asking their opinions, but like sharing of their gifts, the better I think that life will be. Yeah. From Sunil, for me, I've been more aware of areas where I can be in a flow state outside of work and creating opportunities for me to find that flow state. So for example, I said I like being in front of crowds, so I found opportunities to be in front of crowds because it gives me enough energy for the next week. Mm -hmm. This is coming from a massive introvert, but I like that. It, it's for whatever reason, I, I get a lot of energy from that. So putting yourself, it's like you could hope for being in a flow state at work 100% of the time, it's not gonna happen, but there are probably other areas of your life where you can find that flow state and it's just about giving yourself very deliberate opportunities to mm -hmm. to leverage that. It may not feel productive, but ultimately will be very productive for the energy that you gain. Yeah, for me, that's going for a bike ride, one hour out, one hour back, those two hours. The bike, road bikes go really fast, so a lot of the brain is focused on not crashing into things and falling over, but that almost frees me up to not be like on a repeat loop, it just actually yeah. gets me into a more elevated state. Yeah. 
I don't ride the bike. This is not as good for my body. But recently I started playing Tetris again and the blocks move so fast. And it's there is there's some magic around Tetris that it puts me in a total flow state. You have to be the moment you think about anything else. It's game over. And I find it very relaxing with some music. It's just like brings your anxiety, puts your brain back into a kind of balanced state, which I I find really powerful. And flow state, I think the definition is being super engaged with a task where you really don't want to fail. So it matters like that there is a possibility of failure and you really don't want it uh, to get there. And it almost creates a hyper awareness because you're so into it. It actually heightens your senses and your thinking. Okay, two more to go. Dan Martel obviously like quadruple dipped in his uh, thoughts already. But for me in life, the reason why I think I could have been a lot more stuck, but what has helped me, I've always grown up very like ADHD, always distracted, always a million different things going on and so forth. But since starting Ivy for 13 years, I haven't been involved in any other projects. It's like just one thing. Now within Ivy, there's a million different things going on and it's very exciting and interesting. But the fact that a lot of people, they've got their angel investments, they've got different interests, they're doing multiple different things. And for me, having 100% clarity and belief in not necessarily the how of what we do, and but the why of it has been so powerful. And maybe I'm lucky now because it's been 13 years, many people who have come across on that journey, they're like, wow, like you've really stuck with this for a really long time. And then I think about it though, anything worthwhile and meaningful, I don't know, anything that has lasted and we still get to enjoy and benefit from, there's no way that just happened overnight and then went on autopilot. It takes tremendous intention. So I feel very fortunate to have that 100% clarity, 100% belief. I think where I struggle is there are times where also I lose my mojo, my confidence, because some negative feedback comes in from something or we trip on something like it doesn't work or some things take longer. And I think that whenever I can remind myself, a good reminder is, okay, when you have a success, then it's like, oh no, you are on the right path. So I do think that as human beings, we do need to see the success and get that validation. At the same time though, even when we're not getting it, if we just can come back to like, why am I doing this, right? And what's the problem I'm trying to solve? That really is worth it. The equivalent of beating the British empire so that the United States can survive, whatever the equivalent is that is for me and for each of us coming back to that, I think is really, I don't know if there's any other way to get through the darkest days, which is the world has a problem or my loved ones or my company, whoever there are problems that I'm here to solve. And no matter what negativity is happening, I have what it takes to contribute and just need to get back to what matters. We'll come to the last one we've got is Kristen Godsey. So here, I just, I'll do this in a nutshell, basically living in the United States right now we're in Stockholm, but I've been living in New York also for those 13 years. And then I was at business school for two years, undergrad, uh, also in the States. So it's been about 20 years in the U S and as an immigrant, and I find this with other immigrants too, there is this like clarity that like, obviously the U S is such an incredible place despite its mountains of challenges, but it's clear and it's obvious coming from another place. It's obvious, but actually if all you've ever known is the US or if you've been immersed in the US, there may be more of a disadvantage, I find. For me, it's a really great example of, it is one of the most utopian 
societies ever founded. It has become the preeminent economic and innovative power, has given rise to so many things, has helped humanity overcome some of the darkest challengers to freedom and just being good people and so forth. The U.S. is an amazing place. What I feel a sense of stuckness, though, as far as this utopian thinking is, there's such overwhelming negativity. It feels if I pull 10 people I speak with, nine are very concerned and negative. And all I want to say is there's just an absence of a positive vision. And that, that positive vision isn't the Declaration of Independence. And I think it's in the minds and hearts of a lot of Americans. But it needs to be communicated, and it needs to be communicated not just by the politicians, but also each of us, especially those of us in leadership, instead of enumerating all the things that are terrible as like our go-to, or did you see that debate and how much people suck? I think it's got to be just much more about, you know, what are our strengths despite everything that's going on? How do we double down on those? And I know that many people listening to what I just said will be rolling their eyes and being like, oh, Barry doesn't understand how doomed actually we are. But the way I see it is the U.S. isn't the politicians, right? It's the millions upon millions of extremely hardworking people mm. who believe in a better future for themselves and their families and for the future of humanity. And they're quietly chugging along and just like putting their best every day to provide and to create a be better world. Huge number of scientists, thinkers, good people working really hard that whose names we'll maybe never know. So as business leaders, those are the people that we're impacting through our work, all of us, no matter how junior or how senior. So even though we may not be campaigning for political office, we can still be campaigning yeah. for a better future just by expressing what we're grateful for and how we want to be in service to creating a better world. Yeah. The power of aggregates is very underrated. So to go beyond the U.S. and talk about the world, there's a lot of understandable cause for anxiety about the future of our planet and the direction that things are going on now. But I have a strong conviction that guaranteed failure is giving up. And I think we're in a place where folks are feeling like they need to give up and there are forces outside of their control that they can't, that they can't influence. Not just political forces, there's economic forces, there's a lot of forces that they can't influence and they're understandably not looking forward to a future. But the reality is the only way of dooming that future is to give up. And I'm very hopeful and I truly believe, and I don't care if I'm called the, the biggest utopian in the world, I truly believe that there will be a fulfilled and blossoming humanity on this planet that is on a sustainable track for the future that comes about through human innovation. And it may have been human innovation that put us in this rough patch for the planet, but I do believe that the ingenuity of humanity and all of the solutions, in fact, to this big problem have already been proposed. And it's just about having sufficient belief and bringing people around to the idea that hopeful future can exist and leveraging the power of the aggregate to, to get there. Um, and so we have to look at the future as a place of hope and with optimism. Um, otherwise, that then we really will doom ourselves if, if we don't. I'm certainly making that case every day that I can. And it's difficult and it's important to have also empathy, great empathy, and not sound like, a, like your head's in the clouds and there's nothing realistic. Like study the subject, know about what initiatives can help, what the aggregate can do. But the hope is there for yeah. me.
Um, and just like the Declaration of Independence, it, we don't have to get it perfect, but we have to do better and work towards that bigger vision. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the most practical ways we can all do this as business leaders is clearly getting people to focus on what could be a better future and then bottoms up, what are the ways in which we can unblock what's blocking us? What we do here at Ivy clearly is we're endeavoring in the best way to support that process. Learning and connection, those have always been the two key ingredients. We encourage everybody, and I think a reminder even for ourselves, the more we learn about ourselves and the world and the deeper we connect with those around us by using those learnings to commit to making changes, to make things better and making that uh, environment of mutual support and connection, the better that this can be. So every day we're releasing interviews like the five that we talked about today, every workday, Monday through Friday. And each of those are introduced with uh, one life-changing insight. So that insight itself is something that you can read to learn more about yourself and the world and discuss with loved ones or colleagues and then mutually commit to, okay, based on this, what's one thing we might want to change? It's a simple formula. You could obviously do this with any piece of content, but it's more a matter of a discipline. So if you were to just take five minutes a day to learn a concept, take another 10 minutes to share it with someone and hear their thoughts on it and commit to a change, 15 minutes a day, multiply yeah. that by 365 shots on goal over the course of a year, things can only get better. But if we learn just on ourselves and then carry on and not share it with anyone, it doesn't go anywhere. And if we're just constantly discussing problems with people without infusing new learnings into it, it's also not going to get very far. So hopefully this podcast and the insights we share and the incredible thought leaders that write all these books are just additional guides and supporters in your journey. And we'll see you again next time. Yeah. Thanks, Barry. This was fun. See you all next week. Take care, everybody. Bye. All. See you.